Welcome to Cato Audio for October 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Jennifer Schulp sits down with SEC Commissioner Ellen Roisman to discuss the future of equities markets. Housing researcher Nolan Gray discusses how we make housing more expensive and the hurdles to reform. Economist Abigail Hall examines military affiliation in the attack on the Capitol earlier this year. Trump nominee for ambassador to Afghanistan, Will Ruger, discusses the rocky but necessary exit from Afghanistan. And Cato's Matthew Feeney examines drone technology's promise and peril. Millions of retail investors have joined the market in the past year, yet this democratization of finance has not been without a few bumps in the road. At the Cato Institute's seventh annual summit on financial regulation, Jennifer Schulp, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at Cato, hosted a fireside chat with Securities and Exchange Commission member Ilet Roisman. They discussed rising retail investor participation and the future of equities markets. Right now, we are very honored to present a fireside chat with SEC Commissioner Alad Roisman. I'm going to take a minute to introduce Commissioner Roisman before we start the chat. Um, We're very honored to have him with us today. Commissioner Roisman was appointed by President Trump to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and was sworn into office on September 11, 2018. Commissioner Roisman joined the SEC from the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, where he served as chief counsel. As counsel to the committee, he advised on securities, financial regulation, and international financial matters. Before working in the Senate, he served as counsel to SEC Commissioner Dan Gallagher, focusing on enforcement and policy relating to U.S. equity, fixed income markets, the asset management industry, and international regulation of capital markets. Prior to joining the SEC, he held positions as a chief counsel at NYSE Euronext and as a law firm associate in New York. Commissioner Roisman earned his bachelor's degree from Cornell University and his JD from the Boston University School of Law. And SEC's commissioner's attention is pulled in many directions. And during his tenure, Commissioner Roisman has been an advocate for reforms relating to the proxy voting systems and streamlining the exempt offering framework, among other things, including a focus on equity market structure. Thank you for joining us today, Commissioner. Thank you so much for having me. Let's go ahead and start chatting. Um, In addition to everything that I just mentioned that you've been interested, you've spoken at length about equity market structure. Equity market structure is something that's usually of interest only to a select few, but with the rise of zero commission trading, we've been hearing very public conversations about topics that are typically buried pretty deeply in the province of market structure specialists, including payment for order flow and best execution. The focus of these discussions seems to be solely on whether retail investors are getting the best price for their trades when their broker accepts payment for order flow. But these concepts are all a little bit more complicated than that, aren't they? So first of all, thank you so much for again for for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm sorry I missed the first panel. Uh, as I was telling you, Jen, I'm I'm looking forward to to watching this uh, in its entirety because I think it's a great uh, group of uh, not only moderators but uh, but participants. So before I go any further, let me just give my my standard disclaimer that my views are my own and don't necessarily necessarily represent 
um, those of my fellow commissioners or, or the commission. So as you noted, as the case after the emergence of usually any scaled market event uh, or trend, um, public disclosure tends to kind of rediscover issues, uh, especially in market structure, that the commission and the industry have been grappling with for, for a long time. So payment for order flow and best X are certainly two that have gotten a lot of attention. So I think it's important to remember that the issues aren't new. Uh, the commission and the industry have talked about these issues for decades. 30 years ago, the commission determined that a broker can accept payment for order flow, but payment for order flow can interfere with their efforts to obtain best X for its customers. And over the years, we've continued to consider the issue and decided to require disclosures um, as, a way, as a way to allow brokers to accept payment for order flow. If you think about it, we've recently tackled this issue just three years ago. We updated our 606 rules to provide more granular disclosures about both the amount of payment for order flow received and the terms of these arrangements. Um, and for those who are sort of market structure wonks, it's really kind of really articulated well in footnote 397 of, of rule 606. So all of this to say, we have a comprehensive regime that's designed both to hold best X uh, above all else and provide disclosures as a means to mitigate these conflicts. I personally don't know why we would abandon this approach. I think the second thing we should think about is it's not really clear whether today's conversation is about payment for order flow or about wholesalers or something else. As we know, brokers have long sent the majority of their retail orders to wholesalers, irrespective of whether they get payment for order flow or not. And we need to recognize that there are benefits that wholesalers can provide retail investors and make sure that we keep, as a first principle, do no harm. So, I don't mean to say that there's nothing we should be doing to improve market structure and uh, what investors are, are able to get. Um, I've previously made some suggestions in this arena, but we need to make sure that we're articulating a problem before we try to honestly solve it. In the prior panel, and I think in, in ways that you've addressed before, you've talked about a potential need for additional disclosure or better disclosure um, with respect to either best execution or payment for order flow. You referenced the, the updates to the 606 reports. Is there anything else that you see that is ripe for doing in this space now, or at least ripe for exploring? So I think first and foremost, I think, and I've advocated this for a long time now, it's we should be providing a non-prescriptive guidance on, or honestly an interpretation of the requirements for best acts or best executions, um, best execution. You know, firms have told me that it, at times it can actually be really difficult in a sort of a price high market to think creatively about what it means to seek best X. No two investors, stocks, or even orders are uh, alike or necessarily alike. So I think best X is intended to incorporate many of these differences to the extent that we can provide guidance to the marketplace to help them achieve it. Uh, I think we should be doing it. Um, I think things like, let's talk about what relevant factors, uh, you know, I think brokers should be thinking about. Uh, they should explain key terms, and I think we should discuss methods to assess alternative execution venues. I also think it's important to realize that there's differences between institutional orders and retail orders. All these things are things that are sort of uh, everyday uh, considerations for the marketplace, but it'd be helpful, I think, for the commission to, to further articulate it. I also think we should be updating our execution quality disclosures. So we talked about 606. I think we should talk about 605. Um, all markets publish monthly execution quality reports, that's 605. These reports were conceived 20 years ago when the market was completely different. 
So I think the reports should too. Um, earlier this year, I talked about uh, potentially asking retail brokers to publish reports about the execution quality their customers' orders get at each of the markets that they route to. I think this would actually foster a greater competition and help facilitate best X. And I think if we keep focused on best X and competition, I think markets and investors will only be better uh, benefited, I should say. Great, thank you. And I'd like to move on to kind of another hot topic that's been in the news. It's, it's interesting how many of these topics we've had these days. Um, and that's the topic of gamification. Um, we've been hearing a lot about the concept of gamification of trading. And in fact, the SEC has recently put out a request for public input on what it's calling digital engagement practices. Um, we've also seen congressional interest in this concept of gamification. And, and I don't mean to suggest that digital engagement practices and gamification are, are one and the same. Um, and in fact, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts in part because gamification doesn't really have a, a set definition. When you hear these terms, what, what do you think about? So I think you're right. I don't know. I mean, I've yet to hear sort of a concrete definition for gamification. Um, but I think it's important to think about uh, what, what's out there and how people can engage. So two weeks ago, as you noted, we issued a request for comment uh, about what we're calling digital engagement practices uh, for both brokers and IAs, which means both mobile apps and, and, and websites um, and their digital platforms. And some of these DEPs can take the form of whether it's design elements or features, others can include engagement approaches or, or methods. So, you know, DEPs as defined in our request for comment also include sort of the underlying analytical or technological methods uh, that might, you know, power a particular feature. And I think what we're trying to do is get as much engagement from the outside um, about what they think of these practices and what they know about it. Uh, if you leave with nothing else from today's uh, sort of discussion, I really encourage you to both um, submit whatever thoughts you have to the commission, meet with us, but also come to me. My door, certainly my virtual door is open. Um, and this is a place where I think there's a lot more learning we could do. So I think we asked a lot of questions uh, in the RFC. Um, and I think one of the things that kind of shows is that there is sort of this new uh, new way that people are engaging in the marketplace and new methods that uh, people are using to engage with investors. So I think the RFC was a prudent approach um, and only after we kind of get the factual information do I think we can make a decision about what, if anything, uh, needs to change or uh, uh, honestly uh, be rethought. And I'll put in a plug for your, your request for comment to our audience. Um, of course, anyone can submit a comment, but what it was slightly unique about that, that request for comment was that there's a, a form to make it easy for retail investors and individuals to submit information about their experiences with trading apps. So um, if anyone is watching and interested in letting the SEC know how you experience these apps, um, it's very easy to do so. <laughs> um, Kind of digging a little bit deeper on the, the gamification digital engagement practice question, um, and this might be asking you to, to think about it outside of the idea that you're still collecting information, but do you have a sense of what role you think the SEC should be playing in regulating the design of trading apps? So I think we, we've got to be pretty careful about that. Um, I think one of the things that's been a hallmark of our, our markets and honestly uh, 
a benefit to all investors in the marketplace is, uh, I think, technology and innovation. Um, and as a result of it, honestly, you can see over the last year or so, you know, more individuals are investing at an earlier age. And I think that's honestly a great thing. I think learning to invest when you're young helps people make, honestly, mistakes early on learn from the mistakes and honestly continue to save and grow. So I think technology can help broaden access to investing and provide meaningful education to investors, uh, both those that are new and ones that are sort of seasoned. I think we should be encouraging the continued development of technologies that can help these investors learn, meet their goals, and ultimately save for things like retirement. So when I think about what our role is, I think our roles have always been and should continue to be honestly technologically neutral. So ultimately, a lot of the questions, uh, you know, about whether something's a problem or not, will turn on the facts and circumstances. And before we even get there, we need to understand, uh, you know, what technology is and, and how it's being used. Great. And I'd like to to build on your discussion about new investors and younger investors to talk a little bit about the concept of investor education. We saw last year 10 million new brokerage accounts opened, um, reports that there were 10 million more opened already this year. And a lot of these accounts have been from people who are brand new to the investing world. Um, they've been younger, less wealthy, more diverse. All of those things are great to me. And based on what you just said, it's something that you're supportive of as well. Uh, my question is, you know, investor education is something that's been said to be at the heart of the SEC's mission. And new investors tend to need a little bit more education. Uh, how do you suggest going about educating new investors? How does the SEC reach these folks? Or does the SEC not take on that burden specifically? Um, really, just a little bit more about how do sure. we help people make better decisions with the information they have? So first of all, I think, you know, those statistics are, are honestly astounding um, if you think about it. And I think, um, as I said earlier, I, I think it's fantastic that more people are interested in investing. I, I think if people can do it at a young age, uh, they'll be able to have a longer on-ramp uh, to build wealth. And I think honestly, technology and things like FinTech have made this process uh, of investing a, a lot easier. And to your point, I think technology is a great way for us to expand investor education. Uh, I think it's always been something that we've done. And most people probably aren't familiar with our rules and requirements um, that the SEC has. And I think if you know there's new ways for people to get access to uh, you know, securities markets, it's also a new way for us to you know, further our reach and educate uh, investors about things. Um, and I think that is really helpful. Um, I think for me personally, um, when I first started investing, it was really scary. Um, I didn't know if I was making the wrong decision. Uh, I didn't know, you know, putting all your, you know, putting some of your hard-earned money into something which you just didn't feel um, absolute expertise in is, is a really daunting thing. And I think what would have made it easier for me to honestly is to have today's marketplace and today's technology. I think if there could be further discussions and education uh, about things like risk tolerance, diversification, correlation, it'd be great. The other thing I think is fantastic is we have literally uh, uh, a, an internet now that uh, not only facilitates, but encourages discourse amongst, amongst a bunch of people uh, about uh, things like trading. Now, I think it's important for us to 
uh, ensure that people are getting accurate information and are being misinformed or are honestly uh, subject to, to fraud or deceit. Uh, but I do think uh, it shows that this is a medium that is uh, enabling more and more people to uh, feel comfortable within our markets. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We've seen Wall Street Journal headlines about how TikTok is becoming a, a hotbed right. of financial literacy advice. And, and it's amazing to me. I think I, I've missed the TikTok generation myself a bit, but it, it's great to see different places where people are going to learn information about investing and, and where they can learn from people that are speaking their language um, in a way that that helps them learn and, and learn about risk-taking and diversification. Uh, actually, kind of moving on past that to the diversification question, I'd like to shift gears a little bit to a topic that we're going to be covering a little bit later today, and that's the accredited investor standard. Um, for those of those who are in the audience that might not be aware of this, the, the accredited investor standard generally prohibits individuals who make less than $200,000 a year or who have less than a million dollars in assets from investing in most exempt offerings, um, aka private offerings, not the kind that you would see on the NYSE. Um, you've called this system fundamentally unfair, unequal, and unjustified, and noting that wealth is a crude measure of a person's ability to make financial decisions. Last year, we saw a very modest expansion of the accredited investor definition to include individuals who hold certain securities licenses. Um, and Chairman Gensler has put the definition back on the SEC's agenda for this year. Um, what changes would you make to the accredited investor definition if the agenda change was was your idea? Uh, well, thanks for that. Uh, two, uh, one quick thing. I just following up on your last question, which I, I want to just make a plug is um, I thought you you know you raise a really good point, which is that people, uh, whether it's TikTok. Uh, Twitter, a myriad of uh, different sort of uh, technological or you know social forums uh, are being used to help educate. I would love to get more input from investors about what they're using and where they're getting information, so we can expand our outreach and also uh, you know use those as, as forums to, to help educate people. Now, accredited investor, you know, I'm, I was very pleased that we were able to uh, modify the definition last year. And it, as you mentioned, it was, it was pretty modest. Uh, we allowed certain people with industry licenses to qualify. Uh, but for the most part, it's still based on uh, wealth, um, I'd say net worth and, and, and income. And so even I'm, I'm glad we finally moved past that. But I think there's more work that, that honestly should be done. You know, I, you know, the, the example I think of is, it's not perfect, but I get to, you know, vote on and approve or disapprove rules relating to financial disclosure, company disclosure, and even enforcement matters uh, where um, it's relating to these rules. Um, but I don't qualify um, based on, you know, knowledge based uh, to do so. It's, it's a little bit, to me, that it's a little bit strange. And honestly, the better argument to me is that there are people with intimate knowledge of the markets or specific companies or industries who almost certainly have sufficient sophistication to invest their own money in certain enterprises, but they don't qualify under our current uh, income or wealth tests, uh, or even necessarily the, the new FINRA licenses. So I, I honestly think we could, we could be doing a lot more. 
like to see if you could expand on that a little bit more. You've talked about knowledge-based eligibility, and actually I, I hear you on the you are not able to to invest in these. I, I felt the same way when I when I was at FINRA enforcement enforcing the same rules and also unable to to make those types of investments. Um, but do you have any specific proposals worth exploring for expanding knowledge-based eligibility? Yeah, I think, you know, I honestly think that the knowledge-based, uh, uh, you know, qualifications are, are the key. So I think we could think about additional licenses or categories or potentially years of experience and roles within the financial services industry, for example, uh, as a potential uh, proxy for for um, accredited investor uh, sophistication. Um, and also, you know, I think someone hasn't done it yet, but I'd love to see it if someone would come out with a potential proposed test for sophistication um, as a means of showing people's knowledge. Uh, I also, to, to, to kind of further elaborate on something I mentioned earlier, I think people with specific experience within an industry or a business might qualify for investments within that industry. And, for example, I think a nurse might qualify as an accredited investor for investments in companies within sort of the medical services and supply industry, just like a farmer should probably qualify within certain agricultural businesses. Like people know where there are needs within their businesses and are often well situated to recognize you know, products and services that will meet those needs. So I think they should be able to invest in the areas where they have specific knowledge. Honestly, be open to other ways to expand eligibility. You know, I think one of the things that was discussed by the former chair, which I thought was potentially um, interesting and, and a good way, is potentially uh, investing in a fund that you know has access to private offerings. Um, that way, you're uh, you know you have the benefit of having someone who's a fund manager and an advisor uh, overseeing, uh, I'd say, uh, investment strategies of, of private companies. Thanks. One of the reasons that we're talking about the accredited investor standard um, at all is because we were interested in, or I am interested in having investors have the opportunity to both diversify their funds and their investments, but also permitting them the opportunity to have returns that you can find on some of these private markets. It's been the case that over the past 20 years, companies are IPOing later. Um, it's taking them a lot longer to get to the public markets. And generally, by the time they get to the public markets, they're past that high growth stage where people could get in on the ground floor and get those big returns. Of course, that comes with commensurate risk as well. Um, yeah. It's the, the risk return, return trade-off. Um, but we're also seeing some innovations in the IPO space lately that, that have been increasing the number of IPOs um, and have been allowing companies to come to the public market a little bit earlier. Um, specifically, I'm talking about SPACs and direct listings. Um, I would say SPACs in particular have gotten a lot of press lately, but, but direct listings have also had some recent innovations. Um, is there a, are you concerned with any of these recent innovations in the IPO market, um, particularly something like SPACs? So on the whole, so these offerings seem to be satisfying a need. So when it comes to SPACs, I, I do have some concerns about ensuring that the structure and particularly how the promote works um, is transparent to potential investors. So I think there's room for, for potential improvement there. It's obviously on the agenda. So I think you know, the commission will be tackling this issue. 
But I think, you know, again, for many companies, they're just probably the best way for them in their minds to, to access the public markets and um, grow. I think for some companies, direct listing simplifies the process in a way that makes sense for their business model. They don't need to necessarily raise funds. They just want to become public and be part of the part of, uh, you know, our markets and allow ordinary investors to, to participate and hopefully grow with their success. But it's not for everyone and it may not work, uh, you know, well for, for every particular company. So I think there's, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily concerned. I think that there is more interest in it and I think the data will ultimately show, but I think it's great that more companies are, are trying to find a path to, to our public markets. Thank you. And you've been an advocate in the past for simplifying the exempt offering framework, um, allowing companies that are private to, to more easily raise capital. Um, we've just been talking about trying to get companies to the public markets. And it, do you see any tension between simplifying the exempt offering framework and moving companies towards the public markets? Um, and is that is that tension problematic or is it resolvable? So I think there may be uh, tension, but it's not something I want to like overstate. I think companies should be able to use the capital raising structure that works best for them and for their investors. For some companies, I'll mean going public and for others, it'll mean staying private. I think the problem I see is where a company would prefer or wants to be public, but where staying private is what makes sense from a regulatory perspective. That's where we need to dig in and see what specifically is honestly limiting that company from taking the next steps. So do more options for exempt offerings mean we may have fewer public companies? Possibly. But that fact alone, without any additional information, doesn't really strike me as a, an area for concern or a cause for concern, I should say. Okay, we are getting close to the end of our conversation and I wanted to ask you kind of an intentionally broad question um, because we are having an intentionally broad discussion today about retail investors. Um, I'd like to get your views on what you see as the biggest or most pressing issue affecting retail investors these days. Sure, so while it's not an issue I'd say affecting um, retail investors at large per se, I do think that we should consider what more we can do to help prevent older investors from falling prey to fraudsters. And I think this has become particularly acute uh, during the last 18 months. So I think given COVID, people have been isolated from family and friends, especially the elderly are more likely to be socially isolated than many younger people. And given the fact that COVID seems to be especially dangerous for older people, um, these factors have combined to make some of our you know, older citizens uh, feel particularly isolated. And unfortunately, fraudsters have noticed and they prey on, uh, on the lonely and those that are more isolated. So I think one of the things we, we need to think about is what can we do to help further educate people, uh, not just older investors, but loved ones, people in the community about uh, things that they can do to alert folks like myself and the commission and other regulators about uh, schemes that are going on and targeting. And the best thing that I've come up with um, during my time here, and I've spent a fair amount of time trying to uh, engage uh, with myriad of folks, whether it's in the uh, the education, um, uh, to the education industry, in the uh, medical industry, in the regulated industry, uh, and honestly, in the uh, the regulated entity industry, is that the best ideas I've heard have been born out of experience and sort of a private-public partnership of 
uh, you know, uh, raising ideas and discussions. Um, and simple things that uh, sort of seem intuitive late in the game um, uh, have been really kind of impactful. One of the things I really recall is talking to some uh, experts about things that they found have been more impactful about educating um, older uh, older investors and also uh, getting tipped off for schemes is um, people have found it more successful when you're talking to, to certain communities uh, by sort of talking about things to be looking out for for other people that may be uh, targeted for fraud. Um, it's, it's been more successful to say, um, you should be looking out for the following things uh, that are indicia of fraud uh, so that you can help tell people if your neighbors or your friends uh, you know, encounter these things, as opposed to saying, you're gonna be targeted for fraud. These are the things that you should be uh, looking out for. That simple phraseology and framework uh, has has led in many cases, from my understanding, to to greater uh, tips and honestly prevention of, of um, people losing their money. Um, I think also it's important to remember that you know the old the elder community um, sometimes uh, actually gets targeted more often than we think. Uh, when I remember talking to folks at the ARP, they were saying they believe that the amount of uh, frauds that they're alerted to is substantially lower than what actually happens. And it's coupled by the fact that people don't want to admit when they've been deceived. And two, there's also a certain, in some circles, stigma attached to potentially being the target um, or the victim of a fraud, because especially when you're older, people may assume that it's tied to cognitive decline. So uh, the more ideas that people can present us and ways to facilitate conversations, uh, within communities, um, both elder and the broader communities, um, the better off we all are. So please, if you have ideas, I really would love to hear them. So would the staff. Um, and I encourage people to you know, engage on this topic. Okay. Well, our time is up for today. I've, it's been a pleasure, Commissioner Roisman. Thank you so much for joining us. Jennifer Schulp directs financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. Elon Roisman is a commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission. California-based housing researcher Nolan Gray knows well about the high cost of housing in California. We discussed the ways in which housing is made more expensive. We spoke for the Cater Daily Podcast just before California approved two new laws to ease the process of creating new housing. California is a special state when it comes to housing. Uh, it has it, it alarms people, it surprises people to learn that uh, California has the highest rate of homelessness in the United States. And, you know, for such a big state and a state that has such wealth, it's, uh, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense until you dig into the policies. What has, in your view, what has given California its state right now with regard to the expense of housing and the difficulty that people are having finding it? Yeah, well, you know, if you look at the data, California is in an incredibly unusual position here where, at, you know, the, on the one end, they have some of the highest housing prices in the country, uh, second only to Hawaii, for obvious reasons. Uh, but they also have some of the highest homelessness rates in the country. Um, you see it when you go to a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco, uh, tent encampments, 
um, less extreme and, and less visible are the people moving out of the state because they just can't afford an apartment or a young family can't afford a starter home. Or they're cashing out. Yeah, they're cashing out and uh, buying a ranch in Oregon, like my my aunt and uncle who I was just visiting. Um, so, you know, it works out for some people, but uh, for other people, it's been catastrophic. And it's the inevitable result of decades of housing underproduction, which really just comes down to California making it too hard to build. The regulations are too strict. Uh, the local zoning in particular uh, makes it very hard to build the types of housing that California needs. And statewide environmental regs, I assume, are also a, a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. So under California law, any development that involves any sort of discretionary approval uh, must complete uh, an environmental review. These can be very, very costly uh, in and of themselves, but then they also open the project up to litigation risk. So NIMBYs or people opposed to the projects can often sue and tie the projects up in court for months, if not years. So uh, what has California done recently to try to address the problem? Certainly it's a problem that it's ever present in the in the larger metros in California. Everyone's aware of it. Massive companies that have a presence in California have had severe workforce problems associated with housing. So what are they what have they tried to do? What are they trying to do now? Yeah. Well that that's a great point that you've made. When Toyota left Metropolitan Los Angeles and moved to Metropolitan Dallas, that was the number one thing they said is that the cost of living is too high. We can't recruit talent. Uh, or we can't pay them at rates that uh, make it worth them moving out here. So, you know, businesses are concerned, uh, housing activists are concerned. Uh, uh, there's a whole reasons why people are concerned about the housing affordability crisis. Over the last few years, uh, state legislators have tried to get a handle on it and to peel back some of the regulations, um, baby steps really more than anything. The state has legalized what are called accessory dwelling units statewide which means you can you know, take an unused attic or an unused basement or an unused garage and turn it into an apartment. So we've seen a lot of those ADU conversions happening in Los Angeles, and that's been positive, but it's not going to be enough to create all the housing, especially the owner-occupied housing that the state needs. Well, uh, let's dig into that a little bit. What, uh, what kind of discretion do localities have to say no or to slow <laughs> down the process of building accessory dwelling units? Well, this is a this is a decades long story. So the state of California originally tried to encourage local governments to adopt ADU ordinances, you know, in the 80s, I think was when they first started trying to do this. Um, basically, city governments kept finding ways to um, block these or delay these or have impact fees that made them uneconomical to actually build an ADU. So homeowners, of course, didn't do that. Um, over the last few years in particular, they've set statewide standards, which make it very hard for local governments to stop a homeowner from actually building an ADU on their lot. So very little discretion for localities. That's right. Yeah. And, and frankly, that's what's necessary, because in many cases, local governments will do everything they can to stop these from being built, uh, You know, even though you have an incredible demand for housing and homeowners who want to add additional units onto their property. As a legislative matter, what are they working on now? Yeah, so there's a few exciting bills. I think the, the big bill that some folks following this space might have heard of is SB9. Um, so a little bit of context here. A lot of California was was built out, you know, in the post-war period, a lot of ranch-style single-family homes on 5,000-square-foot lots. And to build the housing that the state needs, in many cases, you're going to need redevelopment of a lot of those lots, maybe to add two or three townhouses or a duplex or a fourplex on a lot of those lots. Because in many cases, those homes are situated near jobs and in some cases, transit. So you want to add additional housing, particularly in infill areas where you already have the infrastructure. So SB9 would say, 
any residential lot in California, you can subdivide it into two lots, uh, and then you can have a you can have two units on each of those lots. So essentially, you can take every lot in the state of California, and if a property owner wants to do it, they can turn it into four new units. Um, and so that's positive. You know, duplexes or small fourplexes, and these can even be townhouses or anything like that. Those are the types of starter homes and affordable apartments that the state needs right now. And, and just as a general matter, uh, infill. You're talking about neighborhoods that exist and uh, neighborhoods where maybe the housing stock is not great. Uh, it's been run down in a sense. I'm thinking of certain neighborhoods near college campuses that might not be uh, super great based on uh, the young people who've been uh, living there for a while uh, and not maintaining the property. So uh, what is, what's the upside of infill as a, as a policy? Yeah, well, so historically, most housing has been built out on the periphery of town, right, in a new subdivision on what used to be a farm or a, a forest or something. In a state like California, a lot of that land has kind of been used up. A lot of the land, particularly within, you know, an hour's drive of job centers, it's been developed. So that kind of low-hanging fruit for new housing has been has been plucked, you know, decades ago. So adding housing in a developed state like California, maybe as opposed to a Sunbelt state like Texas or Georgia, where there's a lot of remaining greenfields to be developed, in a state like California, the housing is going to have to be on property that already has something. Um, and so you're right, you know, in many cases there are uh, neighborhoods where they're at the end of their life cycle. You know, the homes were built 50 years ago. Uh, we can continue to restore them and put in the marble countertops and stainless steel appliances and pretend like it's a nice new house. But in many cases, it might actually be positive if a property owner says, yeah, I want to take this and I want to build a duplex on it because I know I can rent out both the units because there's just demand. Or I want to take my property and I want to put three townhouses on it. Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that the state actually needs to happen and uh, local regulation shouldn't be standing in the way. And there are a lot of NIMBYs, I believe is the term, uh, <laughs> who like their neighborhoods just fine, uh, and yet preside over, and I think you and I have discussed this before, sort of sit there happily having prevented the kinds of redevelopment that uh, you like, uh, that I would like, and are wondering why there aren't any children in their neighborhood. I think mm -hmm. that's something maybe uh, you had told me in the past. Uh, so to the extent that California is doing this, all of that sounds wonderful, but in terms of numbers for uh, like ADUs and redevelopment, what do we see? You know, ADUs, it's starting to pick up. Uh, so the, the real key ADU legislation mostly happened in 2017, uh, where the state kind of stepped in and set baseline rules. Uh, so it's coming. It's it's growing. You can drive around L.A. and you come up to a stop sign and you'll see a sign that says I buy houses. And then below it, you'll see a sign that says free quotes on ADU conversions. Right. Um, so not particularly pretty signs, but I take that as, you know, a sign that a market is forming, right? Contractors are figuring out that they can build these things. It'll probably be the same issue with a bill like SB9, right? That it'll take contractors time to figure out that they can subdivide lots or they can make offers to homeowners that will encourage them to do that. But over time, the market will kind of learn that, hey, some of these rules that were standing in the way of housing production have changed and uh, we'll start to see new production. So if the state is setting baseline for this is how it's going to this is how it's going to be, people. Uh, to what extent have localities, uh, what, you know, the politics of this is is critical and everybody's worried about their, the value of their home and they're very, they're very concerned about it. Uh, what has been the local politics of that kind of move? Yeah, well, so, of course, 
the local regulators and local policymakers don't want any of their power taken away, even though they've been shown to have used that power irresponsibly over the last few decades. So, you know, groups like uh, League of Cities organizations typically oppose this type of preemption legislation. And it's also weird from an ideological perspective, because it's essentially it's a state government saying to local governments, hey, you're overregulating. We're going to come in and regulate you and make you stop overregulating if you <laughs> are following the logic there. So, of course, the local governments, they want to have all the power. They insist that, oh, we'll do it right this time. You know, they make pleas like like uh, an alcoholic resisting an intervention, like, oh, we'll, we'll be better now. We'll allow the ADUs. Just let us make the rules. We'll allow duplexes. Just let us set the rules. Um, you know, and, and they've had that power for the last 50, 60 years. And the state government's com coming in and saying, all right, we're just going to set baseline standards for if a homeowner wants to do X, Y, Z, here are the rules, and you can't jerk them around. This is a case where, for a homeowner, their ability to make use of their property increases. That's right. And so uh, it's a net win for the property owner's liberty to use their property the way they want after many overweening local governments have said no. That's right. I mean, it, you know, there's enormous demand for housing, right? Uh, current property owners, current homeowners stand to actually benefit if they can take their property and subdivide it into two or three or four more homes, or if they can add an accessory dwelling unit to their property. You know, people make a lot of big claims about property values, but there's really no evidence that the government scaling back some of these regulations actually lowers property values. And there's pretty good evidence that it might actually increase them in contexts where you can now build a fourplex, where there's enormous demand for uh, apartments or townhouses. Yeah, in neighborhoods where infill would be great, you have the opportunity to completely revitalize uh, a neighborhood that otherwise would just continue to sort of sink into slack. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have you have you have two, maybe two different types of neighborhoods. You have neighborhoods where you know there's not been a lot of investment and the zoning is very restrictive, and you can't really do anything that would be economically productive there. That's one context. Or they have a context where it's very wealthy area. Uh, a small minority of people have pushed very hard for very restrictive regulations, making it uh, impossible to build any new housing in that area. So in that case, the, the properties might be nice, but you could still subdivide them or create additional units. Um, and this is really like small scale infill that they're mostly talking about. We're talking about things like duplexes or fourplexes that aren't really going to change the character of neighborhoods or not really going to dramatically disrupt um, communities. So for other states, obviously, California is just a big sore thumb in terms of of this problem but this problem is coming to other states as well slowly and and maybe uh you know are are other states paying attention to what california is doing or are they thinking oh we've got plenty of space we can just build forever we've barely even tapped you know joe's farm over here um what are state lawmakers thinking elsewhere where things don't matter. I mean, you and I are both from Kentucky. So <laughs> I think about Kentucky where I live essentially on the divide between city and farms. And eventually that's not going to be the case. Right. Yeah. I mean, eventually you develop all of your farms that are within an hour's drive of downtown. Eventually you develop all of your natural areas. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's perfectly fine to let that development happen, uh, you know, especially if it's if it's paying its own way and it's not imposing a burden on other taxpayers. Um, but I think you're exactly right that what we're seeing right now is California is essentially exporting its housing crisis to other states by not having acted until very recently. So for the first time, you're seeing affordable housing issues in a place like Boise, Idaho, 
<laughs> this is not exactly, you know, ground zero for the housing affordability crisis historically, but places like Boise or places like Salt Lake City, um, places throughout the Mountain West are dealing with issues of, you know, surging demand. And then in many cases, they have regulations that are nearly as restrictive as California, but because they had all that undeveloped land, they never really were bumping up against the limits. And for the first time, they're starting to. And the housing prices are just going to keep going up and production is just going to keep lagging unless these states deal uh, with these regulations now. Is there a, a partisan divide on this? Because, uh, you know, if you look back 100 years ago, a lot of the uh, more unfortunate housing policies adopted by cities were defended openly by progressives. Uh, and now it's, uh, you know, as, as you and I spoke last year or earlier this year, you know, Donald Trump is, is, was yelling about Joe Biden wanting to destroy the suburbs. So is, is there a partisan divide? Yeah, I think it really scrambles partisan lines. It's kind of a weird issue, right? Because if, if you're pushing for reform, there are a lot of reasons why you might do that. You know, from a conservative perspective, you might say, Local zoning regulations restrict what people can do with their property. It's impeding the natural working of a housing market where high demand should stimulate new supply. And we're going to get rid of a lot of these regulations. That's a that's a market friendly, maybe conservative or libertarian amenable argument, right, is to clear out some of these excess regulations. And, you know, I think progressives are also now newly very concerned about this issue because they sort of see the way that restrictions on infill are maybe forcing uh, excess development on the periphery you know, driving more people to live further and further out and driving their cars and causing all sorts of environmental issues. Or they see how zoning is used to perpetuate segregation. You know, that was essentially the original purpose of zoning. Um, so I think you have a really kind of interesting coalition here. You know, Donald Trump, you mentioned Trump, he did make a, a 180 pivot on this issue kind of late uh, in his can in his uh, presidency when he was on the campaign show. And I think he saw that he was losing the suburbs and he needed some sort of talking point uh, to deal with that group. Uh, but early in his administration, you know, you have Ben Carson coming out and saying like, yep, we're going to take on these local regulations. Um, you know, in the U.S. Senate, you have bipartisan groups of senators who are sort of sounding the alarm bells on this. Um, you know, you have people like uh, Joe Biden uh, have now take up, taken up the issue. Um, and at the state level, too, I think you have you see a lot of diversity, you know. So in some in certain states like uh, Texas or Arkansas or Oklahoma, They've done a different variety of state preemption where they say, hey, you can't set really, really expensive building material regulations above and beyond what's necessary for health and safety. Or you can't say, oh, no homes unless they're 4,000 square feet. So, you know, the, vari the, the variety of the preemption uh, or the, the form of the preemption varies, I think, by states. But I think a lot of states are dealing with this issue in their own way. And I don't think it's necessarily a partisan issue, which makes me optimistic. Nolan Gray is a housing researcher based in California. The attack on the Capitol in January was serious, but it's important not to overstate the size of the threat the groups involved pose. Abigail Hall is an economist at Bellarmine University who has studied military affiliation in the attack on the Capitol. We spoke in Rapid City, South Dakota in July for the Cato Daily Podcast. There are a few different things that we also see related particularly to the military-affiliated individuals who were taking part in 1-6 that makes this connection even a bit more disturbing. 
So you have this picture that comes out of a group of individuals, think about five or six people, and they're going up the Capitol steps. And if you imagine the stairs and think about people in a single file line and they're holding on to the back of the person in front of them. And this is a well-known military tactic that's called a file formation. Now, most of the time this is used in training, but like hypothetically you would see this in areas where you've got restricted terrain, low visibility, and you're unlikely to come under enemy fire. And so this gave people pause and people were concerned that then this would indicate that the people involved had military training or had been trained by those who did. Um, And as it turns out, I mentioned military-affiliated individuals are overrepresented. So about 14% of the initial arrest. So for perspective, about 7% of the U.S. population is active duty or has a military affiliation. But the other thing that is disturbing, in addition to having this overrepresentation of military personnel, is you also have at the 1-6 Capitol riots, a number of far-right extremist groups. And then within these groups, you have military affiliation. And it's the combination of these two things that I think is particularly setting off some red flags with a variety of different people, um, but also the thing that we were, my co-authors and I were particularly interested in studying. Yeah, so this feeds into and is in part a product to feed into a lot of your other work. Right. So this relates directly to um, my 2018 co-authored book, Tyranny Comes Home, with Chris Coyne of George Mason University. And in that book, we look to understand the process through which the tools of foreign intervention come back to be used domestically. And within that book, we mostly focus on how it is that various government agencies have deployed these various tools of social control. But in seeing this particular example, and there are certainly others as well, um, this is really an example, I think, of the integration of tools of war into organizations that are not government-affiliated, but nevertheless have a potentially very serious uh, consequence as a result. Traditionally, the military takes that kind of threat pretty seriously. The military has historically had policies trying to prevent extremists from being within the ranks. So you have policies regarding tattooing, regarding behavior. Now, this is not to say that you don't see instances where people have gotten in who you would not want to be in the military. So you have a variety of instances, both contemporary as well as historically, of finding things like KKK members who are members of the armed forces who are then ousted as a result. But the argument that my co-authors and I make in this paper is that within a post-9-11 context, people who are affiliated with an extremist ideology, particularly this far-right ideology is where we're focused, that these individuals are more likely to be able to join the military than they were in a pre-9-11 context and are more likely to be able to remain in the military even if they are found to have these ideologies. So if I'm understanding you correctly, a lot of this can be traced at least, you know, the thread may may appear to be thin all the way back to uh, U.S. intervention in a bunch of Middle Eastern countries going back many decades. So that's that's the argument that, that we make, is that there are certain changes, particularly within a post-9-11 context, that have essentially made it 
less costly, now not necessarily talking in monetary terms, um, but has made it less difficult for radical individuals to join the military. Um, and then also, too, we make a, a corollary argument to that, which is that by having these changes, which have allowed more individuals with these types of ideologies into the military, it provides a really fertile recruitment ground for these types of organizations who are well known, or it's, it is well known, that individuals with military training are given a, a priority status, if you will, within these extremist groups. Abigail Hall is an economist at Bellarmine University. The U.S. departure from Afghanistan is at its end, but how much of the bloodshed and other bungling was avoidable? William Ruger was the Trump administration nominee for ambassador to Afghanistan. He's also a Cato Institute research fellow. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast as the U.S. departure from Afghanistan was underway. There's a lot of jockeying right now for position to lay so much blame at Joe Biden for the technical elements of this pullout, the timing of it. How much of that could have been avoided given the the short time frame that at least Donald Trump's plan to to leave Afghanistan was handed to Joe Biden with, you know, it, was that avoidable? Well, I mean. There's going to be a lot of room for uh, holding people accountable, uh, you know, ahead, but not just accountable for some of the problems faced by the immediate evacuation, but for the 20 years in which the United States has been spending precious blood and treasure in Afghanistan. And and we saw this with the Afghan papers uh, that the Washington Post published, where you had our leaders telling us things. Uh, you know, misleading us about the progress that was being made in Afghanistan, when in reality, they had very little clue how to achieve the expanded war aims that really doomed the project. And it might be good to kind of back up and think about that. Like, why were we in Afghanistan? I mean, unfortunately, we have some viewers who, who, uh, or listeners who probably weren't even born uh, when this war kicked off, and and they may not understand wholly what we were doing in the first place, and and I think it's important to talk about what we were trying to achieve and or what we needed to achieve. I mean, the United States needed to do three things in Afghanistan: it needed to punish the Taliban for its state support of Al Qaeda, it needed to decimate or attrit Al Qaeda as an effective terrorist organization with the intent and capability to harm the United States, and it needed to kill or capture Osama bin Laden. And those things were all accomplished relatively early uh, in, you know, especially compared to the 20 year span of this war. And uh, I think that the problem was that we expanded the war aims well beyond what was accomplishable, uh, but even more important in some ways, what was required, right? So this was, this was became a war of choice. We didn't need to do this for our security or our prosperity uh, or to safeguard a liberal democratic system here at home. Uh, instead, these were nice to haves, or these were things that it's really not the proper role of government, uh, you know, to perform. It's not the role of the United States government in the system that we have—a a liberal system in which the government is our agent. Right? We're the principal. The government is supposed to support 
the protection of our property rights, both individually and collectively, against aggressors, foreign or domestic. And so we took upon ourselves the notion that we had to spread our values. We had to build schools in Helmand. We needed to change Afghan society. We needed to promote human rights. We needed to create a centralized government that could effectively govern uh, the Afghan space. Uh, and this was a, a fool's errand. There was no way we were going to do that. And part of that is a hubris about what America could accomplish. And you know, one of the great things about America is that you know we don't like to accept limits. We you know, and that's one of the reasons why we could go to the moon. It's one of the reasons why we could you know build such a great country. Uh, you know, and and I think individuals, businesses, uh, civil society groups have done some of the best things in America. But even our government has performed, uh, you know, in some cases, um, in ways that have been you know daunting or, or amazing. Right? You think about the the um, uh, you know the kind of arsenal of democracy we became during World War II. It was it was quite remarkable. So we we have a kind of can do spirit and. One of the problems is that that can lead to hubris. It can lead to, you know, a kind of um, immaturity. And I think that's what happened. We can we can do this. We can change Afghan society. Their culture isn't sticky. Uh, there, these constraints can be overcome because we of, of kind of that can do spirit and, and, and the fact that, you know, who are these people? Right. You hear these derogatory, uh, you know, kind of notions about Afghans. Right. Uh, a simple people. How could they just use, you know, AK-47s and cell phones and things like this to to overcome our, you know, superior military? But it was just so filled with with kind of problematic assumptions, and and you saw what happened. There was a point at which uh, then ex President Trump uh, said Joe Biden should get these troops out of Afghanistan earlier. Uh, this was a statement that he had made on his personal website that has since vanished from uh, that website. And uh, a lot of Republicans, especially I suspect uh, of the neoconservative variety, hoping for to make a neocon comeback of sorts, uh, were are, are just champing at the bit to uh, blame President Biden for this, quote unquote, hasty withdrawal. How do you see it? Yeah, you heard those terms hasty and precipitous thrown around quite a bit, even during President Trump's uh, uh, tenure in, in, in the Oval Office. Uh, but it's remarkable, right? I mean, we've had since the Doha agreement in February of 2020, uh, even Henry Kissinger in The Economist talked about, you know, we haven't given our allies enough warning. I mean, how much time do they need? Uh, you know, you think about the, the, you know, the Pentagon has known since February of 2020, and they knew that, that Ambassador Khalilzad was working on a, a withdrawal agreement with the Taliban. So there's been plenty of time to plan for this, and it has not been hasty. Uh, again, this is these are bad faith arguments. I hate to say it, uh, and I usually don't like to assume bad faith uh, in the marketplace of ideas. Just take the ideas on 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 their face and and argue with them. But these have to be bad faith, right? Because there's been so much time to plan for this. Uh, there's been so many opportunities to succeed in Afghanistan, given the the twenty years. Again. If this was actually a, a winnable war in terms of those expanded war aims, but the but the Pentagon didn't want you know us to leave, 
the the Washington foreign policy establishment. Sure, there have been you know dis, you know different voices on this, but in general, the Washington foreign policy establishment I don't think favored this. There was lots of talk of like, well, we can keep a contingent there. We shouldn't absolutely withdraw. Um, and there's been a, you know a fair number I think of 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 Johnny come latelys to this once. Uh, you know, in maybe in the Republican Party, once President Trump said we're going to do it in the Democratic Party, once President Biden said, uh, you know, but I do think you have a situation in which these arguments are made in bad faith. Um, it hasn't been hasty at all. Uh, but because of the fact that people, I think, were hoping that this would go away, just like Trump's Syria withdrawal eventually went away, right? Partly through the chicanery of some of the people that were in the Trump administration who were essentially misleading uh, the White House on these matters. But I think there was a sense like, well, if President Trump loses the election, President Biden will come in and he talks about sacred uh, alliances and partnerships and you know, he's part of 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 official Washington for decades. He's not going to carry this out. And so we'll wait Trump out and then we'll hope that President Biden will change his mind. And of course he will. So, you know, and again, it's not to say that there weren't, you know, uh, plans being made. But the fact is, is how serious did people take it and how serious did the did the Afghan government take it? William Ruger was the Trump administration nominee for ambassador to Afghanistan and a Cato Institute research fellow. In the new book, Eyes to the Sky, Privacy and Commerce in the Age of the Drone, essayists detail both the promising and troubling potential uses for drone technology by public and private actors. Matthew Feeney is the book's editor. It's available at Cato.org. Over the last decade or so, what have we seen in terms of the development of drone technology and the use of drones by uh, in particular, law enforcement, but also the private sector. I think at the last year we've seen uh, a, an interesting attempt from federal lawmakers and regulators to deal with this new emerging technology. Uh, what we've seen is uh, a range of uh, institutions such as the FAA uh, and, and Congress trying to grapple with the uh, the the emergence of the drone, which is posing a host of uh, regulatory uh, issues. Uh, the the the, the fact is that we have this relatively cheap uh, flying machine that can serve as a platform for cameras and other tools uh, is, is very valuable in the private sector, whether it's uh, agriculture, architecture, the delivery services, as well as uh, in, in government and defense, but also law enforcement, as you mentioned. And, and what we have seen is that uh, law enforcement are increasingly interested in uh, mounting surveillance tools onto drones. And it was these range of concerns that uh, prompted me to uh, put together the edited volume, um, which uh, we've put out. And I, I think it's, uh, to the best of my knowledge, the only book so far that combines uh, a range of experts on these fields. So there are chapters dedicated to concerns about surveillance, as well as a chapter dedicated to the history of FAA regulation of the drone, uh, written by policy analysts, law professors, um, indeed a former chief counsel for the FAA. So 
people might be surprised to learn that if they're in a rural part of the country and there is a drone flying overhead and they shoot that drone out of the sky, that uh, there are uh, federal legal implications of doing that. Uh, there certainly are. Uh, the The interesting thing about uh, the, the ongoing debates about drones is the, the federal nature of American airspace. Uh, anyone uh, who's been paying attention to um, airports, airplanes, or flying machines in the U.S. knows that there's a federal agency called the Fe uh, Federal Aviation Administration, and it governs uh, airspace in the U.S. And certainly, uh, although many people think of the, the United States as a constitutional republic that embraces federalism, at least when it comes to airspace, we're in a very uh, federally governed environment. Uh, and certainly, one of the chapters of the book actually argues for a more federal adoption of uh, of airspace, that states and local transportation agencies should actually be in charge of having a different approach uh, when it comes to, to airspace. The idea being that different states should be able to experiment with different regulations in light, in part, of the emergence of drones. Uh, th there's no doubt at the moment that drones are very uh, are very popular in certain industries, and I think that's only going to increase as the technology improves. Uh, and certainly, uh, although I think you can see um, issues with how the FAA tried to regulate drones as they emerged, uh, you, you still nonetheless have to appreciate that a lot of regulators are working in the environments that they've been put in. Uh, absent some pretty significant uh, reforms from Congress, I don't think we're going to see uh, federal uh, federalized airspace anytime soon. With respect to uh, you know the, the the private sector, obviously the uh, possibilities are massive for drones in terms of efficiently getting things that people want and need uh, directly to them uh, efficiently with as as little human intervention as possible. But uh, with respect to the public sector. Um, they seem to be going ahead with using drone technology in a way that the private sector hasn't. And that, of course, has significant civil liberties implications. That, that is, police make use of this technology in many cases before they have permission to do so. That's right. And, and there are two chapters in the book dedicated to surveillance. Uh, one, I, I think, does a good job at uh, discussing the state of affairs and what the actual capabilities of a lot of this technology are. And we, we, we might, uh, and, and listeners who have heard us talk before, will certainly be familiar with the fact that uh, Customs and Border Protection do fly uh, military-grade you know, predator drones along the northern and southern borders. But more recently, we've seen state and local law enforcement uh, expressing interest in this kind of technology. And some states have imposed uh, warrant requirements for this kind of technology, uh, which is certainly a recommendation in the book. But there's also discussions about an exhaustion requirement that law enforcement should have to exhaust other surveillance uh, tools and methods before resorting to drones. Uh, and that's, in, in, I think, a concern motivated by some of the uh, points highlighted in another chapter that discuss the actual capabilities here. Uh, the, the, the technology is improving all the time, and, and we're at a stage now where with a lot of the tools you can attach to drones, you can automate the tracking of people um, in cities. Uh, you can keep uh, entire communities under surveillance um, for, for a long time. And uh, th that, I think, is something we've seen with manned aircraft in cities like Baltimore. Um, but unmanned aircraft is um, certainly the future of aerial surveillance. Uh, and if, if, if we're concerned, concerned about you know, a persistent 
eye in the sky, then certainly some of the recommendations in the book are, I think, worth taking seriously. Where do you expect this technology to be in 10 years? I I know law enforcement would like to continue using it because it uh, can save man hours and give you uh, pictures of all sorts of people doing all sorts of things, uh, whether they're breaking the law or not. And of course, the private sector would like to cut a lot of man hours out of the process of uh, doing the kinds of things that delivery groups, Amazon and and others would like to do. Mm -hmm. I do think in the next 10 years in the public sector, maybe not with police, but I think we'll see more and more use of drones and especially emergency responses, whether that's fire departments and uh, um, medical uh, response, especially in the wake of natural disasters. It's not hard to imagine how drones could be very helpful in the wake of a flood or a hurricane um, in order to either gather information about the affected area, but then also potentially to help communicate with survivors on the ground. Uh, With with, uh, the private sector, there's certainly, as you mentioned, um, the potential for delivery, but there's also, I think, a, a lot of applications for um, architecture and construction, for the inspection of buildings, engineering, uh, agriculture, with um, dust croppers being replaced by drones and drones doing similar inspections of crops. Uh, there is also, I think, you know, one that we're, we're kind of familiar with now, but I, I think the use of drones in arts and entertainment uh, will certainly be um, be used more and more. And and policing, I think it will be interesting to see. Um, I think in 10 years, what you'll find is that um, local communities across the US will express um, hesitancy to being kept under a certain, a certain eye in the sky. You certainly saw that uh, in Baltimore. Um, and in many ways, it sort of epitomizes the kind of mass surveillance that um, dystopian writers have warned us about in the past. Uh, so I, I, I'm maybe cautiously optimistic that we can embrace new and emerging uh, drone technology without having mass surveillance being the cost for those benefits. Matthew Feeney is editor of the new Cato book, Eyes to the Sky, Privacy and Commerce in the Age of the Drone. Islam, the second largest religion in the world, has some harsh interpretations that defy human freedom by imposing religious practices, discriminating against women and minorities, or executing blasphemers. In Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty, Cato Institute senior fellow Mustafa Akiol offers a bold critique of this trouble by acknowledging its roots in the religious tradition, while also presenting counter-arguments. With personal stories, historical anecdotes, and theological insights, This is the little big book on the intersection of Islam and liberty. Order your copy today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.